Let's gather together and get started here in 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, we're starting with verse 4. We're studying passages that have been more misused and misrepresented over the years than you can imagine. Uh, these are spiritual warfare proof texts that most of the time are used so out of context that they have, have no resemblance whatsoever to what Paul actually was talking about. So, so before we delve into that, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together with the flock that you bought with your blood. We thank you for the means of grace that you provide for us. Thank you that the Word of God is powerful and changes us and corrects us and renews our mind. Lord, we pray for the flock that's scattered around the world that listen. Pray that you would help them find fellowship, that the Word would have a powerful effect in their lives, and that they may uh, know that we love them and care for them as well. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Anybody eat anything? <laughs> I tried I tried something different this Thanksgiving. I just took one one portion of everything that was out there on one plate and ate it and quit. It's amazing how much better I felt about four in the afternoon than I usually do on Thanksgiving. <laughs> so turned over a new leaf. Okay, so we're in chapter ten, and if you weren't here last week, I was setting the stage by pointing out that from 10.1 through the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing his opponents and rebutting their criticism of him. And eventually he ends with a call to repentance. And as I said last week, in this section, there are two major issues that are behind the scenes that we need to understand Paul's terminology uh, in the context of these two major issues that he's having his debate with these people and calling for repentance. The, the one issue is the fact that they do not consider Paul spiritual. They consider him fleshly and unimpressive and that he does not compare very favorably to the super apostles that we're going to talk about eventually. The second issue is probably a different set of, of people with different set of problems, probably not the same ones, and that was those who claimed the, the right to participate in the pagan feasts. And these pagan feasts included immorality. So Paul is going to address that, and he's going to address the super apostles, and he's going to defend his own ministry. And he will do so from chapter 11, 1 through 12, 13 with the so-called fool's speech. The fool's speech. So we did 1, 2, and, or, see, one, two and 3 last week. And remember the issue of the flesh. They regard us, there's two, as if we walked according to the flesh. And then he changes the term, or not the term, but the meaning. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, meaning in normal human flesh, just ordinary human existence, 
but we don't do not war according to the flesh here, meaning what they were accusing him of, which was having a fleshly approach to things, in a, in a sense, as a fallen, sinful human. So he's going to use now military metaphor to be bold toward the Corinthians and say that he's willing to go to war. <laughs> he's willing to go to war with his opponents. And he uses a siege terminology of besieging a city, pulling down the strongholds, taking prisoners, and punishing them. Okay, that's, what, that's what's going on here. And I, as I said, this is so often mistaught because people think he's talking about Satan and demons. Have you heard of you know, pulling down strongholds and seeing people doing that? They're, they're shouting, shouting at Satan and shouting at demons, and they say, we're going to pull down the strongholds. And how many of you know that you can understand the Bible better if you actually take the context into consideration? <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. It definitely helps. So, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, it picks up that term flesh again, and meaning in this case not of just human, ordinary existence, not something that he would come up with, out of his own strength or his own ingenuity. And his weapon throughout Second Corinthians is the gospel and all that it entails. The gospel and all that it entails. We see that earlier in um, Corinthians, where he said, of our gospel is hid, is hid to those who are perishing. He says we renounce the hidden things according to shame. We don't adulterate the word of God. We don't hide the word of God, but we openly proclaim the truth, and that's what God uses. That's the weapon that we have that God is going to use to destroy the opposition. Okay, the weapons are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for destruction of fortresses. As we will see as we go forward, the fortresses Paul has in mind our ideas. We'll see that from the Greek. He's talking about reasonings, speculations, thoughts, and ideas. These ideas are what are in opposition to the truth of the gospel. Okay, uh, Carla, could you look up Proverbs 21, 22, and Leif? 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 24. Alice, 1 Corinthians 2, 5. Troy, 2 Corinthians 13, 3, and 4. That was Proverbs 21, 22, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 24, 1 Corinthians 2, 5, 2 Corinthians 13, 3, and 4. For those of you who like to jot those down. Okay, Proverbs 21, 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. He brings down, what brings down the stronghold? A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold. Okay, the wise man, okay. In which they trust. Okay. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, 
cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, or for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yes. Now, that is a very important section to help understand the entire Corinthian correspondence. Because you can see behind the scenes, which we have to do in First and Second Corinthians, always there's behind the scenes stuff going on between Paul and the Corinthians. And things that we sometimes have to think about, okay, what's at issue? Well, in the passage that Leif read, at issue was their love of Greek sophistry. Sophia is wisdom. And they wanted a, 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 a philosopher trained in rhetoric. That's who they want to listen to because that impressed the, the Corinthians. Paul, as we will see in chapter 10 that we're studying now, admitted to not being that great at rhetoric or eloquence. That poss- okay, That's, you can see that even from Paul's writings. His writings are not eloquent like the book of Hebrews is, for example. Now, but he'll admit to that, but no more. He won't, he won't admit to being fleshly, and he's accusing them of thinking in a fleshly manner. And that when Paul uses the term power in First and Second Corinthians, power, he's talking about the power of God expressed through the cross to save lost sinners. And Leif just read a verse that said that. Okay? And so when he says that his weapons are divinely powerful, we should always be thinking about the gospel. Remember in, when Paul wrote to, Ro- to the Romans, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God. But taking that out of context, people will uh, take a verse like in 1 Corinthians 4 where it says, well, when I see my opponents, I don't want to hear their words. I want to hear their power. They're thinking because the kingdom of God is, is what does it say? The kingdom of God is not words but power? 1 Corinthians 4. I'm just doing that from memory. Uh, I've heard people say, see, that's why you have to do signs and wonders. Because the kingdom of God is power, in their mind, is signs and wonders. So Paul wants to see these people do signs and wonders, and they're going to have a signs and wonders contest to see who's right. But the context, brothers and sisters, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said that the Jews seek signs, And the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach the gospel, which is the power of God. So the power Paul wants to see is whether a church is established through the preaching of these guys. And that's going to be the issue that comes up here in in 2 Corinthians 10. Because the church was, Paul did go to Corinth. Paul did preach the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ in Corinth. And God did save people in Corinth. And a church was established in Corinth because Paul went there. And then when he leaves, somebody else comes along and said, don't listen to him, a guy is not that great. 
We've got a, we're more spiritual than him. We've got better words than him. We're more eloquent than him. So now he has to defend the gospel. So when you talk about divinely powerful weapons, in the context, Paul is talking about the gospel itself. So don't get that confused. All right, the next verse we were going to look up was 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 5. Uh, I'll start at 4. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There's the same idea. So we saw power in chapter 1, power in chapter 2, both connected to his message of the cross, not anything else. Not, not the wisdom of man. So the contrast between the wisdom of man on one hand, the power of God on the other. Okay, uh, and then we had 2 Corinthians 13, 3, and 4. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Okay, so again, power. <laughs> and when the power there is connected to the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's the power of the gospel. Now, uh, I was going to quote Garland here while says this, while Paul does not elaborate on the weapons at his disposal, he does emphasize their effect and likens his opponents to mutinous resistors holed up in the city of Corinth and miscalculating that their ramparts and battlements will protect them. Human bulwarks and parapets, no matter how high and lifted up, can never withstand God's power. Um, Paul assures them that he has the capacity to destroy strongholds. He does not identify these high bulwarks, what these high bulwarks represent, except to say they are related to the arguments that oppose the knowledge of God. These bulwarks may therefore refer to the assortment of intellectual arguments that humans construct in order to stave off the truth of the gospel. Okay? So what's the battle about? The gospel. And it's waged concerning beliefs and ideas. He, here's some of the words he uses. Logizmoi, logizomai, logizomenus, all of which are having to do with reasoning, argument, speculation, thinking, issues of the mind. And that's where the battle is. The battle is for the mind. I began yesterday to write an article on spiritual warfare. I decided to have to redo the article. I wrote an article on spiritual warfare, I don't know how many years ago now, and I, I get probably as many emails about that article as any other one, even though it's years old. People type in something into Google and they find that article. And so I'm rewriting it because I think, I, I just think it needs to be clearer. It needs to be so clear that they can't get it wrong. So I started yesterday on that. I got about 2,500 words written yesterday afternoon about the warfare worldview as compared to the providential worldview. And I did some reading in Greg Boyd's book uh, called God at War. And he 
uh, promotes the warfare worldview. And interesting, he does it for a little different reason than these other guys, but his, his warfare worldview is constructed in order to make him feel better about the problems in the world. In other words, there's massive, horrible suffering in the world. And to me, Boyd says it looks like gratuitous evil. And we know God must have some power to do something about that, but we don't see him do it. So, therefore, I have to reject the providential worldview. In other words, in order for God to not be indicted for allowing evil to happen, we have to have a theology where God does not have control over his own universe. And that the things that happen in the world happen because of the interaction of humans and gods and demons and principalities and powers, and there are casualties. And God is not to be seen as sovereign over this process. That, that, that's Boyd's thesis from his book. And so I cited him early on in my article and then went to some of the other versions of it. But do you find the, do you find the idea that God's not in charge of his own universe comforting? No, I don't find it comforting, but he just can't stand the idea that if God is, he isn't doing things differently. And so he has to construct a theology to escape from God's providence. And I don't know. It's just amazing. It's, it's too bad. In, in, in a way, that's rebellion itself because I'm not going to accept that God is in control, so I'm going to build a worldview that has him outside of control, so I'm in rebellion. And I, I think it's interesting that the way that those verses are used in the spiritual warfare teaching, where we have to go attack the strongholds and we have to do and do battle, not with the gospel, but with some rank authority trying to take some some uh, spiritual rod and beat the devil with it. Uh, the concept itself is an attack on the gospel. If I approach strongholds that way, even ideas that way, and try to to uh, hold back the darkness as opposed mm-hmm. to preaching the gospel, I'm anti-gospel in what I'm doing. Yeah. Where I'm going with this article is pointing out the fact that we, we don't realize what we're getting into. We don't realize what we're getting into. These, I'm not denying the existence of all these spirits. Okay, I believe there are wicked ranks of demons and Satan and the God of this world and principalities and powers and I was just preaching about the host of heaven a couple of weeks ago. I believe that's all there. It isn't about existence. It's about what the battle is about. Okay? Now, the material I was quoting from in this article is suggesting that we, one guy literally suggests that we should go and interview shamans because they know more about the spirit world than we do as Christians. Well, because they they feel like they have to get this information so that they can more effectively fight the spirits. But as soon as we go into the realm of the spirits, the spirits already won. Because we are not equipped to be in that realm. And the assurance the Bible gives us is that if we're in Christ, we've escaped from their grips, and that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And when it says we're seated seated with Christ in heavenlies far above principalities and powers, is not saying that because we're above them, therefore we can manipulate them to the benefit of planet Earth. It's not saying that at all. It's saying that we've escaped from them. 
And, and the way we escape is through the gospel. And so the only thing we can do to plunder Satan's kingdom is preach the gospel. And as I was said, if you didn't, weren't here for that sermon, I, that woman that was bound by Satan that was loosed by Christ, and then the kingdom is developing like leaven in, in a, a bunch of uh, meal or um, a mustard seed, is that as the gospels preach, people are loosed from Satan one soul at a time. And they're added to the kingdom, and then they're seated in the heavenlies above the things. But if we go into the realm of the principalities and powers and deal with them, we lose. And I think a good lesser to greater argument is that we're not denying that there is a spiritual government over the earth. It implies that the Bible says that there is one. Yes. There's a prince of Persia and different different spiritual entities, the, the, the sons of God, a council of God that... God has set up whatever it is, but inasmuch as God has also set up the wicked, evil rulers that rule this, and he's told us to obey them, we don't have to go to a new country and interview the people and see who the ruler is and try to establish rebellion, take down the civil government, and then go preach the gospel. How much less do we have to do the same thing in the heavenlies when God has also established all those uh, governments, and we just go in and preach the gospel, whatever the ruler is, on on either front? I totally agree, and that's the reason, you know, just to you know, explore a little bit, sometime when we get time, we're going to have a whole forum, and we're going to work out this whole worldview of the host of heaven and how God has been ruling over his own universe since Babel. Okay, So at Babel, the humans wanted to build up, for whatever reason, to become like God or to reach into the heavens or uh, reach the gods, whatever they were trying to do. And God thwarted that and scattered them because by using languages and then established the 70 nations. Okay? And then you have the table of the nations. And then, as I was showing you the other day in my sermon, he put those nations under the host of heaven. The, the, the host of heaven are wicked spirit beings and they're unseen to humans. We're ruled by human kings and rulers that God established over the Gentiles, they're under these principalities and powers whether they believe in them or not. And that's how God has established the universe since that time. And I gave plenty of evidence that that's true, and I have even more of it when we have time to look at it. But Israel was Yahweh's unique possession. Israel is Yahweh's. You're mine, he said. I'm not putting you under the host of heaven. I'm going to be your king. I'm going to establish you, uh, you know, priests and kings and, and stuff. And if you're faithful to me, then, then you're going to be mine, and you won't be under these hosts of heaven. You won't be under this system. But if you rebel against me, I'm going to throw you back under that, and you're going to be scattered in the nations. Then you're going to be under the hosts of heaven like everybody else. And Stephen said in his, in his sermon in Acts 7, that's exactly what happened. He, put, he gave them over to the host of heaven. Okay, so in this worldview, which I'm convinced that we can prove this, um, actually Greg Boyd believes this. He just doesn't believe God's in charge of it. He has a whole section about this heavenly council. It has the same idea, but he doesn't believe God's in charge of it. He believes we have to go into that realm and rearrange it. Okay, so is there a prince of Persia? Yes. 
We know because it's in Daniel. But what did Daniel do when he found that out? He rebuked the prince of Persia, right? No, you didn't read it. He prayed to God. Okay, if you don't like the prince of Persia, you can always ask God, but whatever he does, he does. Right? You don't like Nero? Well, you can pray for your rulers and see if God will give you a different one, but he may not. God's in charge of this. The only way to escape from the host of heaven is through the gospel. Then you're transferred into the kingdom of God, and you're ruled by God. That's the only escape. The civil authorities, you submit to them, pay your taxes, they're temporary. Yes? Um, I was thinking, you know, in warfare, if someone attacks your camp at darkness, you don't leave your lanterns in your tents. You go out and take your light with you. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to fight. We have a champion. We have our Lord that fights for us. All we're called to do is spread the light and spread the gospel. Exactly. We don't have to go out and fight. That's exactly right. So that will be coming out in December, the article... I'm in faith saying I will complete it. <laughs> I'm trusting that I will. And hopefully shed some light on this. Uh, here, you want to pass it forward here? Yeah, I had a question. You know, you mentioned that position of Greg Boyd. And uh, I've heard this, this uh, way of uh, saying this, that any time that someone creates a God in their own way of thinking, that's, a, in a sense, idolatry, because that's not the revealed God in Scripture's. On the stance that he's talking yeah. about. Well, he would claim, in fairness to Boyd, even though I disagree with him on so many levels, it's amazing. But I saw some things in his book that I was reading yesterday that I have to agree with. Number one, he does correctly identify what the Bible says about the spiritual world. Number two, he defends a literal hermeneutic using authorial intent. And he rebukes the postmoderns and the people that don't believe the authorial intent is important. But I think the, the, where he fails is that he doesn't accept any of the passages in the Bible to be literal that say God is actually in charge of his own universe. And because he's more, he's more driven to escape from the problem of evil, in other words, how can a loving God rule over a universe is full of evil. He wants to resolve that to his emotional satisfaction. And he basically says that. He basically says that. So he can't accept Romans 8.28 or anything like it. I mean, how does he accept the fall of mankind, you know, this, you know, well, that, at, in the garden? The, the fall of mankind in that warfare worldview is what happens when humans and spirits interact. There are spirits, there are gods, you have a serpent, you have man, you have free will, and sometimes Satan wins. And then all of these things happen. That's their worldview. And I don't find it at all comforting, but they feel like they have a, an explanation that, that we're lacking. Okay, you're the newer Robert. Okay, you've been delegated to be Robert. Okay. I just want to say that through the years that I've been teaching, I've always received questions, even from youngsters. What's going to happen in the future when we're with God forever if someone wants to set up their own kingdom? In the future? In, in the eternity. And I would say, then God will step in and not wait for time, eons like we've had. 
he will probably demolish it right away and say it's already been done and we're in it still. Yeah, I, in fact, it won't happen. Let me explain. That's a good one. Why? How do we know this won't happen in the future? Let's say after the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, after the devil and the beast are thrown in the lake of fire, after everyone's name that's not written in the book of life is thrown in the lake of fire in the eternal order. Why will it not happen again? Well, that's the big weakness of the Greg Boyd's position because he puts the principle of self-determination above everything else, including God's sovereignty. So he, did, he can't allow this free will or self-determination to be in any way um, compromised because then uh, you, you lose your explanation for the problem of evil. But we know that the Bible says that there are chosen angels that never did sin, and never will sin. And so God is capable in the resurrection, in the new nature that we'll have, to make it so we do not sin and don't even want to. It just never happens. And God's capable of making people who are free and never sin. Because their, their, their sinlessness is based on God's grace, not on their supposed freedom. We'll be free in heaven, but everything we want to do is going to be righteous. Wouldn't it be great to never have an unrighteous desire? Boy, it'd make life easier. <laughs> We'd have a lot less battles to fight. But that's what will happen. Now, it's an order of being that we would have an experience. So, I mean, it's hard to think about, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to think about. But there's a way that we will be so that the only desires we have are legitimate. And all, all illegitimate desires go away. And we'll be like the holy angels in that regard. Yes. Uh, open theism is just one more example of what happens when you don't understand the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another leg on this whole thing. Well, let's move forward to verse 5 here. We are talking about speculations. That's what I'm trying to do with this article. We are destroying speculations... And every lofted thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, this is very pertinent to what we were just discussing. Okay? Very, very, very pertinent. Because, though, as I keep saying, this is the theme that's in my mind right now, so you're probably going to keep hearing it. The only thing that separates us from pagans and paganism is special revelation. Special revelation is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What God has said to us about himself, about the world we live in, and everything that has to do with that world spiritually is all we know about that spiritual world. We can know general revelation through science But that's not saving knowledge. Now, whenever we are unhappy with what God did say and prefer to create a different worldview, we're dipping into paganism. And then back to Greg's book that I was reading yesterday, he starts his book out by describing the pagan worldview from the mouth of pagans, and then, having described it, saying that's the same worldview the biblical authors have. Only, the only difference being the God, the, the, the supreme God of the biblical authors, 
authors is a little bit more supreme than the supreme God in the pagan worldview. It's amazing that you'd say the pagan worldview and the biblical worldview are the same when they're really diametrically opposed to one another. See, now what are, when we start thinking that way, what are we doing? Well, we're speculating. Here's what it says. We're destroying speculations. And the word in the Greek for speculations is logizmos, logizmos. And it means, according to Lao and Nita, one of my resources, deceptive reasoning. In this context, it means deceptive reasoning. It may seem right to man. It may seem more reasonable than believing God is in charge of his own universe. It may seem more reasonable than believing that God is going to save both Jew and Gentile through a Jewish crucified, a crucified Jewish Messiah. It doesn't seem reasonable. So the sophists come up with their own reasoning. And so that's Paul's opponents. They're arguing using untrue uh, ideas, deceptive reasoning. We're, and so though, that's the battle. Paul's going to destroy those. And in every, the term all or every is used three times in these two verses. Five, excuse me, five and six. Every lofty thing raised up. Now, the lofty thing raised up here would mean a defensive fortification or a raised rampart. Okay, so it's a defensive fortification to try to defend the logismas, deceptive reasoning, against what Paul has to say. And it says here that it's raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, why does he say that the reasoning is raised up against the knowledge of God. Where does the knowledge of God come from, and what does he mean about it? The knowledge of God comes through the gospel. Yeah. It's a knowledge against the authority of Scripture or against the authority of special revelation. Yeah. In essence, in fact, what you're doing with Greg Boyd's book is that's a speculation that he's speculating on and bringing the authority of, the, of God through the gospel and through the written words of his special revelation in black and white, pointing out that that's a speculation that's not true, and hopefully freeing people from it that have been bound by a pagan worldview. Exactly. I was thinking that as I was reading that book, God at War. The, you know what's absent? There's a whole lot of material in there about what the spiritual universe is right, gleaned from scriptures, which is all good and fine. But the whole point of it is to absolve God from any guilt concerning the problem of evil. That's the point of it. Now, the interesting thing is, what's not addressed is the idea where people in the Bible directly ask God about this. And that's what's missing. See, if you're going to write systematically, which he was, boy, God bless him, says we ought to do, so he's not... New Age, and he's not emergent, and he's not postmodern. He believes in systematic theology, which none of them do. But he's not actually practicing the systematic because there were times in the Bible where people did ask God why he allowed so much evil. Job being one of them, Habakkuk being another one, the Lament Psalms being another thing. Now, how did God answer when people asked him why he allowed so much evil? <laughs> Good one, Paul. His answer was, who are you? 
I'm in charge of my own universe. I created all of this. And then Job finally said, okay, I repent. God works according to his purpose. That's got to factor in. The knowledge of God. Let's look up. Boy, we've got a blank row here. Thanksgiving took its toll. Paul, if you could look up this knowledge of God as mentioned earlier. So if you could look up 2 Corinthians 2.14 and Jim, 2 Corinthians 4.6. Let's talk about this knowledge of God. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Okay, so that was that one about the triumphal procession and that the knowledge of God is manifested through Paul in this triumphal procession. And so we know that this, the knowledge... See, when we, t- when we take the idea of the knowledge of God, let's just take that idea, the phrase, knowledge of God. There's actually two possibilities, and it's used both ways, I believe, in the New Testament. One of those is to understand it relationally. The knowledge of God meaning, now that I'm saved, I know God. I have the meaning I have a relationship with him. I know God as my Savior. And the other way would be, another use of the genitive would be the knowledge of God, meaning knowledge about which God is the object. Knowing who God is in his character, in his attributes, and, and so on. That's true, too. We need both of those things. We need to know who God is, objectively, according to his own self-revelation, but we need to know him relationally in a saving way. Okay, A person, I would uh, defend the idea that if a person was objective enough and an expert in reading and understanding languages, that such a person could construct uh, a theology about the knowledge of God even if they were unsaved, if they were willing to do it. Because it's in the Bible and is revealed objectively. They may not be motivated to do it, but they could do it. And I've actually seen that happen. Okay, um, For example, in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, under the uh, entry for pistis, faith, the essay in there that explains what the word faith in the Greek means starting all the way back with classical Greek, Septuagint, intertestamental literature, New Testament literature, and then coming to conclusion about what the word faith means in the Bible. That entry was written by Rudolf Boltman. Bolt, you know who Boltman is? Yeah, he was a heretic who demythologized the Bible. He didn't believe that a lot of the things the Bible said were true at all. But in his entry in a theological dictionary of the New Testament, it's brilliant. He knew what Paul meant by faith because he was an expert in the language and he could read what they were saying. So it's possible to see the objective values revealed in the Bible without having a relational knowledge of God. Now, when, it was, when he didn't have his theologian hat on in the sense of, or Greek scholar hat on to write this essay and get it right, and he took that off and he went and put a different one on, then he trashed it. It says something altogether different. Okay, so the other one was 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 
For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, that's the relational one. That's the shining in our hearts so that we might have this glory, the knowledge of the glory of God shining into our hearts. That only happens through conversion. But it doesn't mean, how would you say it? It doesn't imply an existential understanding of Scripture, that Scripture has a meaning that you drawn out, not objectively. Okay, now, the knowledge of God here, relational in this context through the gospel, then we're taking every thought captive. The word thought is noema, and that would be the content of reasoning, which is used in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, Mary Alice, if you could do 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and see how this idea is used there. Oh, actually, read 2 Corinthians yeah, 4.4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. Okay, so there's a blinding that is what is creating the captivity for the lost people in the world. They're blinded by Satan so they can't see the fact that this is the way it is. And this is blinder. So how did Paul attack that blindness? By preaching the gospel. By preaching the gospel. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So here we have spiritual warfare in the realm of ideas and beliefs. And they're, they're about, the issue is the gospel itself, and, and the result is either a knowledge of God through the gospel or spiritual blindness that, that's inflicted on people by Satan where they stay in their lost condition. That's the battle. Okay, yes. Paul didn't have problems just with everyday situations with the Gentile Christians. His with the apostles and disciples, their number one problem at the start was their fellow Christian Jews. Yes, right. The, the Judaizers were a, a thorn in the side of Paul all wherever he went. It was a battle. It was a battle. Well, I got a bunch of cross-references. Let's keep going. What's your name? Lori. Could you look up Psalm 10 and verse 4? David, you want to do one? Isaiah 2. Uh, Try to remember this. Isaiah 2, and i got three verses, 11, 12, and 17. 11, 12, 17. And Ardeth, Daniel 4, 37. You don't have a Bible there. Robin, you want to read a verse? Matthew 15, 19. See, you thought you were safe. Clear back in that back row. <laughs> and Diane, Luke 1, 51. <laughs> Okay, but over here with Psalm 10 and verse 4. The wicked in his proud continence does not see God. God is in none of his thoughts. Okay, the wicked's proud continence is what keeps them from seeing God. Isaiah 2, 11, 12, and 17. The lofty looks of a man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of man shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. 
The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Okay. So the day of the Lord brings down the haughtiness and loftiness. So we see again that this, um, the speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God, even in Isaiah 2, are people's attitudes and beliefs. The haughty man is, lo- is, is you know, considering himself in a lofty position. It's like the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Aren't these people just exhibiting the traits of their father Satan, uh, pride? Yeah, good point. That, if you want to, another cross-reference to the passage that uh, was just read from Isaiah 11, or Isaiah 2.11, go to Isaiah 14, where Satan, or Lucifer, says, I will five times. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Self-exaltation. And in the Garden of Eden, the temptation was to exalt self to become like God. Don't listen to what God says. You can have your own ideas, and that would be the high, lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Wow. Remember that story? I think I, Wednesday, one, Carl told me the other Wednesday night, you, you, some of you that come on Wednesday night to study Daniel went through that narrative about uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that an interesting story? Yeah. Here, here there, there, there's on, at so many levels. One of, the, one of the levels that's interesting is that he has this dream, and Daniel interprets it that, his king, that he's going to be knocked down. Right? Daniel 4? Okay. And... Let me tell you what that illustrates. It illustrates divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how the two coexist, like we were talking in Ryan's class the other day. And here's how. The dream was a decree from God about what was going to happen. And so Daniel could have been fatalistic and say, well, you're toast. (laughs) Too bad for you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're toast. That's what it says. But what did he say? He says, if I were you, I would repent. Right? Because God's a merciful God, and he relents concerning calamity. So why don't you repent? So Daniel did not interpret it fatalistically at all. He said, your responsibility is to repent, Nebuchadnezzar. But he didn't. So what happened to him? (laughs) He went crazy. He, He went out of his mind. He became like a beast. And went out into the wilderness and the dew and the feathers and all of that stuff. It's a really bad description. It's something you wouldn't want. Okay? But when he comes back and he regains his sanity, well, that verse is what he said. God, he came to know the truth about God. And he actually did repent in the end, after he'd gone through what he went through. And as I read Daniel, remember authorial intent, Daniel wants us to know the what Nebuchadnezzar said after this it was the truth about God. That's the way God is. He does as he pleases in heaven. Okay, so great story. I love that one. A person could preach a sermon on that. Matthew fifteen nineteen. So many verses and so few t- 
so little time to preach on them. Matthew 15:19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Out of the heart. Yeah, Jesus says the problem isn't the outside of the cup, it's the inside. And the wickedness that's really evil in the world comes from inside of us. You want to give him one? So the law, the, the things that are raised up against the obedience of Christ, the, the defensive fortification, fortification, the raised rampart, are the thoughts of a person's heart. That's our problem. Yes, Paul. So in practical how we apply this, do we understand it as simply preaching the gospel? I mean, it's not simple, but is that preaching the gospel or is that preaching the gospel and apologetics where we we are combating the thoughts themselves and we're okay good uh, Paul very good question and if you didn't hear it he said is this just preaching the gospel or is there apologetics as well dealing with the things at a worldview level well I believe both because the Bible says both okay and when we do the apologetics class with Eric Dalman is going to teach that he, we're going to begin with what we can know about, well, we're going to start with logic, because you need logic to go anywhere. So we're going to start with logic. And then after logic is established, because logic is our access to the world God put us in so we can understand it, then we can't be saved by general revelation, but we can be convicted of, of the reality, according to Romans 1. So then we're going to do... Uh, the various arguments for the existence of God that are logical and reasonable based on general revelation. Teleological argument, cosmological argument, um, moral argument, and so forth, and that and apologetics. I think that's absolutely valid because God wants people to know who he is and they need to be face-to-face with the, the fact there's a creator. And uh, the gospel is preached in a bigger context of, of apologetics. And God uses these things. So we're saved by grace, but he uses all of this. In my case, he used the heme molecule in organic chemistry to convince me he existed. That didn't save me, but it made me a theist instead of an atheist. Yes. We were just having a conversation this weekend that a lot of times in your own thinking and in your own thoughts day to day there are these thoughts that come up that are contrary to what the gospel teaches and you fight and you wrestle with these you know emotions and ideas that are in your own brain that seek to bring you down and and there's a real fight that goes on there of saying no this is not true uh-huh. this this is what the scripture says and this is true and just on a day to day basis in your own thinking that you you fight what's wrong with what's true because it's it's the truth that that sets you free and that that yeah, keeps yeah. you thinking right. Absolutely, what's revealed and what's evident it needs to be pointed out. Okay, Paul has a follow-up question about the apologetics or something or something like that. Yeah, something. Yeah, <laughs> um, maybe just a qualifier on apologetics because. You know, oftentimes people think they can just argue people into the kingdom of God where they, you know, if I give you enough evidence, you will believe. And that's, 
No, no I know apologetics are good and right, but like you said, you know, that molecule, it didn't in itself make you believe, but God used that to bring you to... He got my attention. He got your attention by that, and that's, I think, we, we always need to remember that as we use yeah. apologetics, or if, at the end of the day, it's God who has to convict the heart, cause them to see that evidence is valid, and... Right. Um, I, use told, that to I make totally believe, agree so. with you that it's the gospel that saves people, but... I think it's worth doing apologetics if, if for no other, if it does no more than what Paul said in Romans 1, is it makes people more accountable on the day of judgment. Because they were given evidence. And we need to give a reason for the hope that's within us and so on. So the truth is our ally as Christians. The way things really are is our ally. And another reason for apologetics, beloved, is for the benefit of the church itself. Especially young people that need to be trained so they don't have some smart professor try to take their, pull the rug out from under them when they get to college. I believe that Christians need to be grounded in the fact that we're not just believing myths. We're not just believing fables. We're believing about the world the way it really is and the way God created it. And we have a solid reason for our belief that's grounded both in special revelation and in general revelation, both of which are our allies in the battle. Now, here's the battle as I see it now, is the fact that paganism is always on the attack. We are always, always surrounded by the pagan temptation. We, in our flesh, are pagan. And if we start walking in the flesh, the paganism will allure us. It's always like a big magnet trying to pull us in. And we need the truth of the Bible and the gospel as a bat, to help us battle against this because like you were saying Carla our minds are going to go the wrong way unless they're com- continually instructed in the scriptures yes it also gives the Holy Spirit something to work with in reaching and convicting the elect yep and uh, God uses means but there's one more verse here oh sorry Keith I'm going to hand that back to Diane. She's been sitting with that verse patiently for a long time. You have Luke 151. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. That was, yeah, that was that uh, early in Luke. Who was it? Simeon that said that? No. It's Mary. Mary. Yeah. So God... Oh, um, uh, Lawrence. (laughs) Carla's comment made me think of a verse that I think is a great, concise response to the pagan worldview, and it's Proverbs 16.25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. Yeah. Amen. What seems right to a man? What, What seems right to just about everyone I intend to answer that myself. What seems right to man is that everybody should be able to come to God or goddess however they see fit. Pluralism, relativism, is just what seems right. And that's what people want to believe. That if you're a sincere Hindu, that's fine. If you believe animism, that's fine. That everybody has their own religion, that's fine. But the end of that is death. What is right is that God has spoken. And if we don't listen to them, we'll be pagan. Yes. I think that it's important to, 
while we have different traditions around the world, Hinduism and uh, Buddhism and other things, that when we're saying pagan, it's not necessarily reverting to Hinduism. It's become, you can have a Christian paganism. We might take our culture and make a Christian paganism. And in essence, that's what Roman Catholicism became, was a You're Christian right. paganism. Yeah. When I have all the attributes of a pagan worldview under the guise of Christianity, we have Christian paganism coming in with the mysticism. It's yep. Christian paganism coming in with the emergence. So it's a pagan worldview in the guise of Christianity. Under the guise of Christianity, which is even worse than regular paganism, because it's more deceptive. In fact, the title, my working title of my article is uh, Spiritual Warfare, the Paganization of the Church. And, and I don't even know if that's a word. If it, it is now. <laughs> the Paganization of the Church. Every pagan society has a shaman to help them interact with the spirits. It, 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 you just study anthropology. And just, what are, what are people like? If you just put them, they're, they're somewhere, anywhere in the world, just anywhere in the world. There's people, and they've been there for centuries. What are they like? They'll all have shamans that interact with the spirits. They all do. Because they know the spirits are there, but they don't know, and they know the spirits are probably bad, and they just need to figure out how to manipulate them for the good. Yes. Even within Christianity, Arminians think they have the ability to come to God. They, they, who has the ability? Arminians. Well, I know, but I don't agree with them. <laughs> I don't believe that the gospel of human ability is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. Even in uh, a less, even in a uh, worldview where it's maybe less animistic, or if you will, out in Boston, I see a lot of people that end up exalting man as the god. Then instead of the instead man, of, uh, instead of they may not believe in. God of the sky or whatever, but you end up having a man that's a god, and you have to try and understand, get in touch with what the spirit of man is yeah. trying to say. Well, when they try, when it does that, let's take Marxism, if, you know, in the whole uh, Soviet era. They wanted to take their exalted idea about man and enforce it on the people in order to push paganism out of people by using total secular materialism. But for all the work that they did, they never succeeded because the paganism was built into the people. The second that that went away, everybody went back to their mysticism. Yeah. And and there's more mysticism now in Soviet Union than than before there was. Yeah. Yeah, they they could not suppress it, even though they really, really tried very hard to suppress all religion whatsoever in their atheistic worldview. And it didn't change the wickedness of man. You know, the people that say, well, the problem... Christianity has caused all the problems in the world. Um, look, at, look at how many millions were killed by the atheists in the Soviet Union. Millions and millions and millions. They just man me nothing. We'll just kill them. Oh, man, we're going over. Interesting discussion. We'll continue this. Ah, uh, Larry, cut off at the... No, I, I got a couple of books from MacArthur I read a few years ago. I think one was Vanishing Conscience and the other one was Reckless Faith. And I think what you're talking here is... One of objective truth and one of subjective truth. Yeah, the subjective will always lead you astray. Okay, see you upstairs at 1030.